0: So it's good to be back for another live event this week. Today we're going to be talking about quite an important subject at the moment. It's one that we flagged last week that we're going to be discussing this week. We're going to be talking about the COVID tracker app. What does it do? And how does it work? Well, we're going to be discussing that in just a few moments' time. And we're going to have some guests to help us out with that as well. We're going to have our Chief Technology Officer, Kyron O'Mahony, back with us for that section as well. But we're also going to be talking to the Product Manager for the COVID Tracker app. Ireland app, Garma along with the rest of our regular panel as well, Sean, Daniel, JP and myself. So that's quite an important subject that we're going to be talking about today. So uh, stay tuned for, for that. That's just coming up in just a moment. And then later on, we're going to be continuing our series of Seeing It Your Way interviews. Now, last week, we were able to hear from Stuart Lawler. didn't get a chance to hear that one, be sure to check it out on our podcasts or on YouTube. I'm sure you'll enjoy that as well. But you'll also enjoy today's interview with Mark Keogh, an NCBI service user who's going to be chatting about his experience with JP a little bit later on. Just a reminder that uh, if you've got any questions or comments, particularly about the COVID tracker app, well, now's your chance. Um, We already have some questions. and comments in which we'll be sure to cover throughout our show. But there's still an opportunity if you want to uh, ask any questions about it, please do feel free to use that Q&A panel on the right-hand side if you're using Microsoft Teams or just drop us an email at labs at ncbi. That's labs at ncbi.ie and we'll be sure to either try and answer them today if we can and if we can't get an answer immediately today then we'll uh, try and make sure that we get back to you and get an answer for you over the over the next week. So without any further ado let's actually start off straight away with this uh, first subject of the COVID 19 uh app that's out there the covid tracker app and we're delighted to welcome gar mccreece the product manager for the covid tracker ireland app to the show and also we're going to welcome back Kyron o'mahony who's going to lead the discussion now with the rest of our panel as well so we'll just pass over to Kyron and to to gar
1: uh thanks very much uh jude it's good to be back um on, yeah, great to have on you back life live event uh, everyone's doing a great job so far uh, i can't believe we've done 15 of these through the 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 19 crisis so it's been um uh, it's been a great journey for us in the ncbi i think today is um is a really important uh, segment on our technology event it's something that uh, we spoke of um quite some time ago uh, when it was announced that Google and Apple were working on an API to support the fight against COVID 19. Uh, and we discussed that many, many, I think that was way back in, in event number seven or eight, and we're already up to 15. And I'm, I'm thrilled to welcome the product manager for the Irish implementation of this apl- application, the COVID 19 tracker app for Ireland, Gar McCreese. Gar, welcome along to the technology event today.
2: Thanks a million, thanks
1: for inviting me yeah it's great yeah it's great to have you here just just to give people some some background before we we jump into the kind of the q a side of things um so the ncbi reached out to the hsc to um to work with you guys directly on on this app given its importance and i I do firmly believe this is is probably the the most important app to be released um in, in ireland and you know, you guys were really eager to make your app as accessible as possible to the disability community and specifically people with um, with visual impairments. So we, we worked together before the app was released to make sure that was the case. And, and firstly, before we kick off, I just wanted to say, like, I really c- commend the effort that has gone in to make the app uh, be as accessible as possible. So that, that's something I think that you and your team and the HSC should be really, really proud of.
2: Uh, And I guess, uh, Karen, from our perspective, I mean, it was great to be able to work with you guys and the effort you guys put in, the hours that went into this, because I I think this is one of those interesting um, projects that just pops up. It's kind of a one in a lifetime So Mm -hmm. you got asked, can you help? It it was something nobody really truly understood. We were kind of working through it and working together, and you guys were amazing all the way through it in terms of helping us, and also helping us understand from an accessibility perspective, how do we make this thing work
1: as Mm -hmm. best possible for everybody? Cool. So do you know what I, I think you know let's let's take a little step back and and, and talk about firstly I mean just so so everyone um, that's listening into us now can get a sense of, of tell me what is the CoVID tracker Ireland app Just tell me from from a layman's perspective why I should download this app and why it's important and what it does. Sure. So
2: from a layman's perspective, so the COVID Tracker app is a pandemic response app. So it's designed to help uh, the HSE respond to the needs of the pandemic. Um, it's, and it does three primary jobs. So the first and foremost one and the one that's gotten the most attention is contact tracing. And contact tracing is the process of understanding when somebody does get infected, who they've come into contact with. And the quicker we make that contact and the more comprehensive we make that, the that is the approach that that public health has taken for generations in terms of shortening and uh, limiting the spread of any particular infection in Um, any population. So this is so the the actual technique and contact tracing itself is not a brand new thing. It's an age old thing. It's something that's been going on for generations and what the app does is help in two different ways specifically to do with contact tracing. The first is it speeds up the time it takes to notify somebody. So if In the event, Karen, that you get tested. And if you're unfortunate enough to test positive with COVID 19, you'll receive a call from the HSE and asking you to, uh, well, first off, telling you that you tested positive, giving you some help around that, then asking you uh, to. Upload these random identifiers from your phone. And these are pieces of information that are unique and distinct to you, and but they're anonymous. So they don't identify you in any way. And it allows you to share these with everybody else who's using the COVID tracker app. And should anybody have been in contact with you, it helps us accelerate that. So even for people that you know, so if it's a brother, mother, father, sister, it helps us tell them faster that they've come into contact with somebody who has tested positive. It doesn't say who, it doesn't say where, it doesn't say, it doesn't specifically say when but what it does tell you is it tells you that you have come into contact. And depending on what you've chosen, it helps you make decisions as to what you do next. And, and it's following public health guidance. So the contact tracing piece, so that's that's one. The other one is for um, those situations where it's, um, it's, we call them non-intimate contacts. So it's somebody who you don't know who they are. So you couldn't possibly, uh, tell somebody in the agency who they are. So for
1: situations like that, because of the way- uh, the, That'd be uh, like happened. maybe being on a bus or something on public transport or something like that maybe? Yeah, think of it even in a cafe,
2: if you're standing mm. beside somebody in in, uh, in a queue for something. So if you're standing beside somebody in a queue, if you're in a cafe and you're sitting uh, not too far, if you're at at a meeting, so if you're meeting somebody and it could be in a business context, but you don't know that person's name and you couldn't list them as a close contact if somebody was to call you, this will allow that piece of information to be shared and that person to be notified if, they have come into contact with somebody who's tested positive for COVID-19. So that's kind of the contact tracing piece. So the app serves two other purposes as well. So the, um, the next one is really as a, a source of news and information. So it's the ability for us to be able to give you, and I think everybody was early on uh, and I think we had t- talked about this before. We were all uh, transfixed with the, the headline numbers. So, mm-hmm. how many new cases? How many people in hospital? How many people in ICU? And as that number kept ramping up, as the numbers come down, uh, the so what we're doing at the moment is providing that information in the app. And I think that's something that we're we've got a lot of feedback on with relation to what people are looking to find out and looking to know. So we were publishing headline numbers out there because we thought that would be interesting and of use to people. And it turns out that they are of use, but people have. Other the requirements from an information perspective to help them understand what's going on and also make decisions about uh, about things as well and on that we also include information about the usage of the app and it's really to try and help people understand uh, because at the moment I think we're up around one point I'd say we're heading towards 1.3 million people who've, um, wow. who've onboarded on the app at the moment which has been at a, an insane pace and it's way in excess of what we anticipated in terms of just that the speed of uptake in this. There was obviously an appetite there, and people felt it was important that they um, stay safe and protect each other, and that's been the core piece in this. So as we go through this process, it's getting people up and running and understanding that as this network grows, the more people who, who are actually using it, the more people, the more coverage we have, and the easier it is to notify people should they have come into contact with somebody else. So it really is that that piece, but this very much works at a micro level as well. Mm-hmm. And I think the last bit is uh, one of the things that happens when um, if you're being tested for COVID, or you're, you suspect you've got it if you ring your GP, or if you call into HSC Live, is that somebody will ask you questions about, uh, do you have a cough? Do you have a fever? Do you uh, Have you lost sense of smell or taste uh, in the past 14 days? So you'll be asked questions like this, and a common challenge that people face is pinpointing when this has happened. So trying to understand when symptom onset, and symptom onset is an important date from an infection perspective, because you've got this window where you're highly infectious when you get COVID-19 and from a public health perspective it's trying to identify when that is and also people's memories are fragile so I couldn't tell you did I have a cough last Wednesday well I could now because I've got the app but for for a lot of people they couldn't they couldn't tell you when it happened and it's trying to pinpoint, pinpoint that piece of information so providing a way for people to record symptoms that they've had on an ongoing basis and it kind of generates awareness as well for people that these are symptoms and if i do notice it it's something that happens and we're seeing probably uh, day on day somewhere between 250 and 350,000 people are checking in with the app and sharing their their symptomatic data and we're Uh, we're we're working with the Central Statistics Office to be able to visualize that. So that data helps inform a national picture and it's part of a a process. So there's some wonderful words in uh, public health, syndromic surveillance, which is looking at the evolution of a a disease within a population. So when we get this data set, it's actually informing from a public health policy and an epidemiology perspective. It's helping build up this picture and it's not. An isolated data set. It's part of this overall piece of all the data that we're capturing through many different channels to figure out what's going on in the country. And I think a lot of people were checking in, and there so there was a novelty factor. But we've seen a repeat of a lot of people still checking in. I think one of the interesting things with this is from uh, for sporting organizations and religious organizations, a lot of the return to play protocols or return to service protocols have revolved around monitoring and tracking symptoms and understanding where that fits. So I think this is. That it's it's not designed specifically for
1: that, but it can certainly serve a purpose within the context of something like that. So, 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 so essentially, essentially if um, there's there's three core functions we have: the contact tracing. Um, which is hugely important, just uh, for managing any spread of of, of an infectious disease. Um, we have the informations on 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 the the virus itself. So, and I think that, for me as a as a member of the pro- public and not someone that works in technologies, just have a single source of truth, you know, on my phone that I can check at a glance. I think is huge. And then, obviously, symptom checking and log- logging is hugely important. Um, that they would be the three core core functions of the COVID tracker app. Exactly.
2: And mm. there are other so there is one other for uh
1: function which I think is probably worth
2: mentioning in that we have implemented a leave function. So if somebody decides that they want to leave, uh, they go into settings, they click leave, they're asked to confirm, and then they're gone. So we scrub everything, you're basically back to the very beginning again, and it's as if you never existed to the COVID tracker app, to the extent that the app knows about you. Mm. I think there's a piece here which is um it's it, uh, like we can kind of dive into the technology around it, but there's the bit that we manage mm-hmm. and the bit that Google and Apple provide in terms of an infrastructure for contact tracing, which is the Google and Apple exposure notification system. So we can jump into that. So well, why, of- don't,
1: why don't we, um, I think, you know, I think it's important we talk through the development process for this because I mean, our audience essentially is people who are interested in technology. They're intra, you know, people who use it as an enabler in their day to day lives. So that's, I mean, that's why we provide this uh, technology event. It's so important um, um, for people with site loss to have access to the right technology. And one of the things that I wanted to get across today is how we worked on the accessibility side of things. But I think I think to give our audience a perspective of how app development works, you know, and, and I've worked on, on many apps and before before, some successful and some not successful. Um, but given the importance of, of an app like this, I mean, one, one thing I would say is 1.3 million downloads was that that was in two weeks. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest apps ever launched in Ireland, I, I would suspect.
2: So we had to put it in, co- we had a million within 48 hours uh, and I'd say it was probably on under 40 hours. We had a million people upon the platforms. Mm. And so that was the first thing. And to put it in context, I think uh, somebody said it the other day, Twitter has 1.6 million app users in the country. So just to give a sense, so we're, and we're still growing, so it's obviously there was the immediate spike and a lot of people came on board, but we're seeing daily steady increase in progress through that, and it is just following that curve. But I guess to go back to your question in terms of the development process, and this is, um, so I'm going to, Name check a couple of people and and thank them for the privilege of ending up in here. But uh, well, actually, outside?
1: I think I think before before you name check the people <laughs> involved, I just wa- I just wanted to ask you a, qu- a quick question. So sure. you, you you in terms of your own role, just so everyone knows uh, on the actual uh, um, this application. So you were the product manager. Was that for the, the the app and the website, or was that just tell tell us a little bit about you know how you sure. came to be involved, and then we'll move on to the the broader team maybe. <laughs> and,
2: and that was the, the name checking. So there's a guy called Tim Willoughby, who's the head of innovation um, and digital in On Guard the Siakona. And uh, so uh, the the guards were involved in this early on and they were looking, so they were helping. And my name basically came up in conversation as uh, I think we need guard to help here. I was like, okay. And that was kind of the, the starting point. So this, and to give everybody a sense of the timing on this. So this was the 18th of March this year is when this whole thing started. So it's in that week. So it was the day, it actually started on Paddy's Day, ironically. So started on Paddy's Day and it has gone at a million miles an hour since then. And the the role at that point was to try and figure it out. Well, initially we had a problem to solve, which is if this, if COVID-19 scales the way it's scaling, so if it spreads as quickly as it looks like it's spreading. How do we address that, and how do we um, how do we support contact tracing in a digital way? So at this point, Apple and Google weren't even on the pitch. We I was just no going to say,
1: was the was the API even announced to be in development at that point?
2: No, no. Wow. So it didn't get announced until it was probably, I think we were three to four weeks into the project at that point before, and we were in conversations
1: with Apple and Google at that time. And then- So it t- tell me, who was, who was the project team back then? I mean, it, cause I mean, I've been in situations like this before where you're handed a product or, you know, it's a product that doesn't exist. And someone mm-hmm. will say, I have this idea. Now your situation is slightly more focused than that, but uh, we need to make it work. And initially, you know, when you have to lead a project like that, and particularly as a product manager, you know, your reaction is, holy F, how am I going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, let's yeah. call it spade, spade. That's the reality. You sit there looking very calm and collected, and then in the back of your mind, you're going, holy mother, you know, ex- expletive inserted. How am I actually going to deliver that? So, there, you know, there must have been a sense of that as, as, you know, wait, I'm now the guy that has to deliver this. What am I going to do? Like, so tell me, tell me about the team. Tell me about, you know how you reacted when you were given the nod that you know you know you're the product manager for potentially the biggest app that Ireland's seen.
2: <laughs> so unfortunately I've got a character flaw which uh, attracts me to things like this. If it's a chaotic situation I kind of feel like I should be somewhere in the middle of it. So in, in, in this particular situation um, I got a call from the CIO Fran Thompson in the HSE and said uh, asking me um, would I lead out on this and I said yes. There was no role definition. In mm-hmm. fact the, so the The idea of product management is it's a recently added thing into this whole mix in that if uh, as we were looking back over it so that and product management i think is one of those things that uh it gets hyped and then it disappears and it gets hyped and it gets disappeared and i'm an architect by training i guess and by profession for a long time so i've worked as an enterprise architect and solution architect and you name it any kind of architect you care to mention so that mix of skills in terms of understanding what the need is from a business perspective the ability to translate that into technology options and figure out how do we how do we solve for a particular problem and helping people understand what the problem is that we're trying to solve for? That's kind of core to like a lot of the work that I've done over the years and most of my career. Mm. So um, so that was kind of where I was coming from and how I got thrown into it. Um,
1: were you with the HSC at the time or were you with yeah?
2: No, I I was with the so I've been working with the HSC since late twenty eighteen. Um, I started and I've worked on a variety of things in there from innovation to portfolio management application portfolio management to like it's a mixed bag. It's kind of uh, you name it. I I have an interesting set of skills that kind of I've I've managed to develop over the years that can be pointed in different directions. So I'm a utility player put it that way. Mm. So. In this situation, um, I guess I had the right set of skills to be able to help understand and solve this problem, but this is one of those interesting ones in, in that this was not uh, it wasn't just the HSC. so it was the HSE and the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform mm. and the Shia Khana and the Defence Forces were involved at the beginning. So you've got five different departments plus the Central Statistics Office and Ordnance Survey were involved as well through the course of this. So, this is very much a multi agency, multi department initiative. And the HSC are obviously the lead because we're, we're responsible for delivering healthcare. Mm. but it's a and so the team was uh and it was drawn from the original team was drawn from people from each of those departments who had the right skills who could help and i guess we were lucky enough that we had people who were both um had experience in app development had experience in mobility had experience with kind of uh data analytics so we had the right we had the right people in the room and then finding the right partners as well. So, we worked with a couple of organizations, uh, NearForm being one, and uh, XBO from a test perspective, and ISAS on the data protection and security side of it. So, we had this uh, team that was formed very quickly uh, to to build this, uh, and we didn't know what it was at that time, because if you go back, and this is to track back, it seems all very obvious now, looking backwards, that of course we were building the COVID tracker app, and of course that was the way contact tracing was going to work. But at that point in time, Apple and Google weren't on the pitch, um th- there were a variety of solutions. So we were scanning globally to figure out how people were solving for this particular problem. Uh, there were projects coming out of MIT in the States that was using um, a GPS location to do it. Mm-hmm. There were projects kicking off in other places where people were using ad identifiers or using- um, tracking, yeah, tracking. tracking. Yeah, other tracking. Yeah. I think like, so there were a variety of different ways. So if you look at the data sources that can help inform is in contact with who there's lots of different ways of solving for that particular problem so we were looking at some of these and obviously in the back of our heads it's looking at this as a mass adoption out to the irish population so from that perspective you've got to be satisfied that um so are is are we just doing what we need to do or is this is there a
1: better way of solving for this particular problem? I think so, was, so essentially at that point you had a problem to solve you didn't yes. know what the solution was you, you knew it would be digitally supported or a digital driven solution did you even know it was going to be an app at this point I mean was that was that always the end end game that it needed to be something that that ran on people's phones well it, it kind of
2: became an app pretty quickly as we and and I guess if you look at that first week so I started on the Wednesday and uh, I think we'd we changed architecture twice by Friday. Right, so we were building geo big data and then we were off building something else and then uh, we had and this the, I think the interesting the, like it's a really fascinating piece to this is that, We're not alone in that there are teams, and there's a me in lots of different countries, globally now, who are trying to build these apps. Now we know what we're doing, and we're all sharing with each other. And at that point in time, um, so the guys in the NHS in the UK and NHSX, they had started building an app. It was a Bluetooth proximity based app. And then by Saturday, I think it was the 21st Singapore. So Jason Bay and his team over in Singapore had released the Trace Together app, which was the first kind of mass, proximity-based, Bluetooth-based contact tracing app that anybody had released anywhere. So they released that on the Saturday and that resulted in uh, this poor guy, Jason, being inundated by 40 countries, knocked on his door and said, can we have your code? Can you tell us what you've done? (laughs) And so it began this whole process. So we began looking at, okay, so proximity-based using Bluetooth, how can we use bluetooth to tell how far somebody is from someone else and for how long and it's the how far and for and, and for how long and is is it for too long so the um the guidelines for this go back so if you look at the existing guidelines come from um the european center for disease control ecdc mm-hmm. and it's uh within two meters for more than 15 minutes is the guideline so our specification was uh, find a way that you can detect people who are within two meters for more than 15 minute for more than 15 minutes, and that's kind of the core requirement of from a contact tracing perspective is to be able to do that. And looking at it from that perspective, others there's lots of suboptimal solutions, but in terms of, uh, and there's also lots of more optimal. Like so, if we had um, uh, ultra wideband, we could do centimeter based, but not every phone has that. So you've got. Other so just
1: just some so some context that like ultra wideband would only be available on some of the very 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 latest phones and so that yeah. would, that um that really wouldn't be a solution for widespread uh, implementations. So, um, I think what just so I can keep in context that the the, the the audience that we have here, like I would love to talk about how you investigated ultra wideband, but given, um, uh, uh, essentially, how Terry architected it. So, at you know we also want to keep it at a, a slightly higher level but one of sure. the things one of the things i would i w- would be curious about is that so i i think bluetooth probably evolved as 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 one of the most obvious solutions that that would have come out of that initial investigation if i'm correct mm-hmm. and you just then essentially needed um a way to bring that together so we're probably as you said we're you're only a week or two into the development process where you're you're still you know you've made a decision on to technology, I would assume, and now you're trying to find a way to build it, or is, or am I jumping too fast too quickly? Um,
2: I, I think it was one of those ones where there was a lot of um, and, and I guess I think it, so one of the practices that we have inside of this is to keep an architecture decision log. So of all the architecture decisions that were made throughout the course of it to figure out where, do, well, uh, what decisions are we making? So it's acknowledging that, understanding the consequences of those decisions, but also um, is this a reversible decision? So is this something I can back out of? Because some decisions you make are more difficult to back out of than other decisions mm. uh, over time. So we were making these decisions as we go, but a, a lot of it was very, very rapid fire. So the backend platform ended up being Amazon. Right. So it was AWS, so we've got AWS in the back end. So we understand the, uh, the the services that are there and the kind of things that we'll be able to do in terms of the capabilities that we need to build an app infrastructure around it. So we know we need to store data, so we need a database. We know we need to be able to send notifications or queue things and integrate and send them off to somewhere else. So we're building out this kind of these bits and these blocks of it. On the front end of it, at that point, we were trying to validate um, how how do we do this? And there's kind of, the, you've got a couple of different choices from, and I'm not going to dive in too deep on this, but it's beacons versus core Bluetooth in terms of how you do it. And then we're looking at the, the actual reliability of these things. And one of the challenges we saw early on was, and this is directly from feedback. So we got into contact with the guys in Singapore pretty much straight away. Mm. And everybody was asking for, uh, can we get your code? Can we get your code? And they had signaled that they were going to release the, their code as open source code, and but it hadn't been released at this point. So we were basically reverse engineering from the design of their app, what they had done. And then the guys were really good in terms of helping us understand what they had done and, and the decisions. But there were some challenges with both Android and Apple, in terms of either battery performance or uh, background processing, not waking up and t- not waking up accurately or effectively. So basically, you could end up with um, just devices being missed. And what you're looking for is pairwise interactions. And if they don't happen, and another and a phone is kind of missed, then that that's a it's a challenge. So we were trying to figure out: are there ways? And those really, really like clever engineering stuff went into trying to figure out um, how do we get this to work in a reliable way? And it wasn't just us, there were teams in Germany, there were teams in the UK, there were teams in Italy, there were teams in Singapore and Australia who were all sharing different ways. So we basically would have these calls probably once a week to figure out uh, have you got it working, have you got it working, have you got it working? And people were making incremental progress on this. It did come to a point where It didn't look like there was an obvious solution. And at the same time, Apple and Google had signaled that they were going to release this Google and Apple or exposure notification system to to provide this infrastructure to allow people to build apps on top of it. And I think that probably stems back to the the Singapore guys were there in the first instance and their requests in terms of how do we build apps like this? Google and Apple listened and built this infrastructure that, that allows them to do it in a way that both preserve the privacy of their users, but also create the robust, reliable infrastructure that people can depend on. And I think the dependability of something like this is is critical to it. So it's yeah, making yeah, sure that
1: I- that's there. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. I think, for me, you know, when, when the announcement first came that Google and Apple were getting behind this, right? So you've got, you've got two of the biggest, you know, tech companies in the world, or the biggest tech companies in the world, um, saying that we're going to work together, we're going to figure out how to do this privately, we're going to figure out how to, you know, how to support the delivery of contact tracing essentially, um, and, and simplify some of the steps because, I think, for you know, the initial re- the initial research, that you guys had done obviously you know would have required a tremendous development effort without um, provision of of, of, uh, of a solution from Apple and Google. So why don't we talk just a little bit about about the, the Google and Apple API, because I don't think everyone really knows what an API is. I mean, we spoke about it before. Like it's, if I remember correctly, it's an application programming interface, but fundamentally I would describe that as enabling computers to talk to each other or providing a service for computers to talk to each other and, you know, um, for requests back and forth. But, it, in in the process of building the covid uh, tracking app for ireland when the google api and apple api was released how quickly did you guys decide this was the solution for you um, we had had several conversations at pretty high levels with apple and google mm.
2: uh, the week before it was an before it was launched before and this is before the developer seed was did you, launched.
1: did you get tim on the phone like yeah 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 me and tim are bffs <laughs> <laughs>
2: Tim Apple. um, I was talking about Tim Winneby. I think you're talking about Tim Cook. (laughs) 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 But I I think one of the. Uh, so we'd had this ongoing conversation with both of those. Well, with with Apple prior to that, as we were trying to work through it, and they'd been really helpful on that front. They had made the announcement. We were having, we were trying to understand how this would work. And I think just to set the scene for this as well, there are, like, if you look at uh, public health in general, public health has this idea of an index patient, and an index patient is this known person who is infected with a disease. So with in this case with COVID nineteen, and when you think about the um, so. When we were having original conversations in terms of what do we need to be able to do, it was with that in mind and that's uh, because that's the, the way that these kind of things have been done for generations. I know who that person is. I know who they were in contact with. Therefore, I understand the social graph that results from that and I can trace through and track through on that. And that's kind of the prevailing view on that. That's since been called, uh, so you'll hear um, in the media things being called centralised and decentralised. So that centralised view is where I know who the index patient is and I understand what the graph looks like of people and the connections between those people. And in normal public health uh, work, that's how it works, right? So in any other disease, say it's measles or say it's TB or something like that, that's how it works. And in manual contact tracing. So if you test positive, that's what happens. You give that information and that's the the centralized view of the world. It ended up with this giant debate raging around the world around a uh, centralized bad decentralized good, which and it lost all of the nuance, but basically the decentralized view is that I don't know who the index patient is, which preserves the privacy of the index patient and it allows me to notify people that they've been in contact, but in a privacy preserving way. So, up until that point we were basically following the uh, mirroring the model that was released in singapore which was built around this knowing who the index patient was and we had a like the, there was a uh, as part of the onboarding process, you put a phone number in and we knew who you were and we could contact you and we understood the connections. Apple and Google, when they released this, they had determined that from a privacy perspective, the, pri- the most privacy preserving way of doing this was to go with a decentralized model. Mm-hmm. And the decentralized model basically meant that nobody knows who, and nobody, like, including the health authorities, don't know who anybody is. So people can be completely anonymous within this network. And that's how the app is built at the moment, that if you don't want the HSC to participate in your care at all then we leave you're completely on your own you'll be notified if you're in close contact with somebody but apart from that there's no other participation and the hc will not know about you well i, and I, think, I think that's that's one of the interesting things
1: one of the things that, things that it comes, it comes up over and over, and over and again, again when you when, when you, you see the, the, the mentioned in the media is is, is, the, is privacy the privacy piece. Piece. and that's and you that's, know and it's something that um uh, there was an echo in my headphones there for a couple of minutes very hard to form a <laughs> form a, a question when you can hear yourself talking at the same time but on on the privacy side of things i mean fundamentally apple have built themselves a reputation for being a privacy focused co- company you know so um you know so leveraging you know that brand value in terms of releasing an api and, and being supported through, um, uh, through usage in the the HSC version of it, you kind of have you know privacy out of the out of the door. But is there any additional steps that you've taken with the release this release of this app to ensure that it's you know it is private, it is secure, um, just to give people some reassurance on it? I mean, we have.
2: <laughs> If, if anybody cares to uh, to read the data protection impact assessment, which is published up on GitHub, so github.com slash HSE Ireland, you will, um, it, it's a, I think some of the feedback we've gotten has been very interesting because it's now um, it, we're kind of a victim of our own success in that because we had spent so much time in, in determining the appropriateness, so how we should go about doing this and what's sufficient and making sure that we ticked the boxes from a data protection and privacy perspective, that it's becoming kind of a, a but there's been a bunch of privacy people have turned around and privacy experts have turned around and said everybody should do it this way so it's now a new bar so mm-hmm. but it, it is actually like from a i guess one of the challenges people have faced in the past is data protection and privacy is a difficult area and it tends to get quite technical quite quickly and i mean technical from a like a privacy policy perspective it can get really detailed and what we were doing and because of the the uh the public scrutiny on this Every single piece of this was done with the view to making sure that we were as transparent as possible in terms of what we were doing, what data we were collecting, what we were doing with that data, where we were going with that, where that data was going, how long we were keeping that data, what it was for, and making sure that people understood both the data that we captured and what we were doing with it, but also from a privacy perspective, how we were protecting that. So what we were doing with that, and I've said it to many people during the course of this, this has had the most oversight from a data perspective for an app that has the least data I've ever worked on. Right, mm. so it it literally has it has nothing you don't want it to know. There's no excess fat in any shape or form in this. Right, we're capturing just the minimum. So if you decide you want to onboard in the, and use the app and never provide a single piece of information, you are free to do so. No metrics, no nothing. So we have made sure that each and every piece and each and every decision is yours to make, but also yours to undo as well. So the settings in the app, everything you've decided to do, you can undo or change, and and. That's that's been a very much so the privacy by design gets talked about and those those three words get bandied about a lot. This is privacy by design in action. So this is how, how you do it and how it can be done. And I guess given the time frame, so we're 18th of March up until now, I think we had um, the app was published into the App Store on day 100. Mm. And, release, and released publicly on day 110. So that's kind of the full elapsed time from very beginning, from start to the point where it's released. So it doesn't have to take forever to do these things, and you can follow and adhere to the policies and do all of these things in a timely way, mm. uh, provided that you've got a good team who knows what they're doing and you can actually get the work done. Because, But the, I, I guess to go back to your question about how do we ensure it, it's literally bit by bit, data point by data point, uh, processor by processor, understanding who what where why for how long and just going through that and it's breaking it all down so isas were one of the partners who worked as, with us on this and they've been like they were like it's like it's a soul destroying process as you're going why do you need that and it was like well we need it and it was like well why do you need ip address because and i remember the conversations went well why do you need ip address and i think the answer and unfortunately it's the smart ass answer because it's the internet We need the IP address, but we don't do anything with it and we get rid of it as soon as we can. Mm. So it's kind of dumped. And I I think from that perspective, we've been, it's been a really rigorous process. We we also, uh, I think it's probably important to add as well that we had Science Foundation Ireland put together um, a series of research groups to help us. So um, we had one covering off analytics. We had one covering off kind of Bluetooth and proximity. uh, We guys doing code review. We have um, people doing kind of ethics, user experience. Uh, so we, we had these other, and I'm probably missing one, so I'm, I'm sorry to any of the SFI groups that I've missed at this point, but we have, we have this huge, so Ireland's research community came together behind, uh, so uh, coordinated by Science Foundation Ireland but to support us and enable us. So when we had questions or if we needed somebody to go off and help and find something out, mm-hmm. we had those and we also had an original expert group who had convened to try and help the government in any way and these were just private citizens who put their hands up, but then the research community is become incredibly useful to us to be able to reach out to and to ask questions to figure out is there a better way and to review things that are done through a range of different lenses so I think that's kind of the the scope of the work that we've done to try and make sure that it's private that
1: it's secure that it does exactly that that it does just what it needs to do So, so I think what's important to touch on now is that the development process was obviously rigorously scrutinized um so uh, and you checked a huge amount of boxes from privacy uh, perspective uh, it's been massively successful there's 1.3 million downloads at the moment so we know looking at statistics typically somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of people that use any um, um, piece of technology have some level of disability yeah uh, and that's typically around so obviously, you know the accessibility of the of the COVID uh, tracker app was was something that you know we needed as the NCBI. I wanted to make sure it was important. I remember when you and I originally spoke. Um, uh, the words I would say to you is that I, I I believe this app is we need to make it accessible. It's not that you know we should. It it has to be. You know. So we you know to providing you as much feedback uh, uh, as as we can is is crucially important. So. I mean, at what point in the development process where um, did did accessibility become the focus of of the build and making sure that you know out of one point three million people, and you could probably say that two hundred and fifty thousand of those minimum are going to use some level of of accessibility features on their phone. So h- how did that come up in the development process and 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 um, and how did you kind of ensure that you know you were ticking all those boxes? Mm.
2: So I, I think there's two answers to that. So accessibility is there. So if I look at how we were evaluating the, um, I guess, the qualities of the system, so the quality attribute characteristics of this system. So mm. we're looking at performance and reliability and scale, scalability and usability, accessibility are other aspects. So it's kind of, it, it's standard practice to begin to look at that. But when you start digging into accessibility, I think there's two, two sides to it. In terms of good guidance around app design for accessibility, we were basically following web accessibility Guidelines and the UX guys who, who were working for Nearform with us on this were kind of following those, and the devs were doing what they needed to do. But it was one of those things that I, I think it was being done as um, we were kind of following the guidelines, but without the context. And I think mm-hmm. the first conversations that that you and I had that kind of set the scene for me. And I think that was probably it was in April. I think at some point is when we talked. I think mm-hmm. it was uh, yeah ar- around that time frame. Sorry, that time is begins to morph. It's COVID time. <laughs> yeah. So basically, between yeah. March and now is probably about three and a half years of real time for me. Yeah. But it's it it all gets compressed, and I, I think at that point the first conversation, which and it was something that we were so busy trying to solve the proximity problems, and you put it into context very quickly, that um, contact tracing for somebody who uh, has no sight is extremely different, because you can't say who you were with if mm. you didn't know and like you because you literally couldn't say, you couldn't explain. And so there were things like that and situations like that. So it, it totally changed the way we were thinking about it as a team with relation to the impact on specific users of the app that we had because we were building an app for everybody and we were building it really fast. And I think that conversation kind of really shifted my thinking in terms of th- understanding the impact on specific specific groups and specific uh, for, for people who have specific um, uh, issues from a site perspective and from a general ability perspective. So we were kind of going through that process. Uh, like anyway, but this brought it to a point, and I think the expertise that you guys brought to the table, and I think the early conversations, and I, I won't, I won't paraphrase you, but it's a, uh, it was more or less. So how bad is it, Karin? It's not that bad. They weren't your exact words, but <laughs> it's uh, <laughs>
1: I remember the word I used, but uh, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah, not yeah. appropriate for you. <laughs>
2: um, I, I was so happy you used that word and not another word. <laughs> but we were kind of in that situation where um, we knew that we we had done a job, but it wasn't enough. And then working with you and Sean and the other guys to go through and test it, and it's it's literally going through it, and it's going through it as and uh, uh, with a deeper understanding that we could ever bring to it, and being able to play that back and feed through it, and trying to make. Um, and, and we had a good, we had a, a fair few rows about whether we do or don't do it and do we do this and how, like, is, is that as important or is this as important and trying to trade it off? Because we're we're looking at it from the point of view of trying to get something delivered and there are trade offs that are made all the time. And I guess you guys were great in terms of helping us understand uh, the trade offs we were making because we're we're not making them on behalf what, like, or with knowledge and you can help us understand from like from uh, from service users that you have in terms of what's important to them and what would be what's needed what's required what's a must have or must do for us so i think some of those things that really change the way we do it and it's now embedded in the way we're we're thinking about the roadmap for the product as well, well so that's, accessibility that's is kind that's, of at the heart of
1: it it's, it's something that we um, through through kevin uh, kelly who's our head of advocacy here in in the ncbi and myself talk about in 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 great detail is that what we advocate for from a technical point of view in the NCBI is um, you know it's it, to speak about done people in in technology talk a lot about done is a product done and we always make the argument well it's not done unless it's accessible so as you scale the bigger you are the more people are going to be impacted by your your um, uh, your technology not being accessible. We we worked with a, another company that has 5 million users a month. And I made the argument to him is that, you know, you, you're talking about building a platform. If it's not accessible, you could be looking at, you know, 25% of your client base, so especially almost a million people a month are, you know, saying that your product is unusable to them. You know, so um uh, and it's actually it's more than a million, but I'm just I'm, I'm just rounding down for the, the, the sake of it. But the reality is is that you know what what we've tried to do through working with with like the likes of yourselves, and that's why I said from the very start, given the importance of an application like this, it's fundamentally, you know, the definition done is not achieved unless it's accessible. And I think, you know, it's an it's something, you know, when we look at accessibility statements and things like that, you know, it has to be a commitment to accessibility. You know, so you embed it as part of your development process. You embed it as part of your definition of done, and you're willing to accept feedback from people with disabilities to give you that context. You know, so you were just to give people and um, who are listening in some 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 of an overview. There is accessibility guidelines that that out there, and we do review them and we give feedback to companies like the HSC and others in terms of what there is. But there's also, you know, there's also the reality of living with sight loss or the reality of living with a disability. And there's also balances based on commercial need. For example, what we give we give a huge amount of feedback on with in terms of this app is not only voiceover features like and I know that they're, they're you know because with voiceover it kind of works or it doesn't you know there's a specific tab has a lab- label that's read back to someone with sight loss or it doesn't but what's equally important is for people who are you know with limited or low vision how they interact with the app you know so there's guidelines around contrast there's guidelines around you know the the even you know the size of the text supporting dynamic fonts and sometimes that can be infinitely more difficult to you know to to, to implement because you know how an app is fundamentally built can make a a make a a big it can make it very difficult to correct those so what we did for 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 gar and the team in the hse is we provided feedback on both of those things and said here's how here's all the issues that we've had so in the ncbi we had a pre-release version of of the application and we installed it on android phones and ios phones and we purely provided feedback on how accessible it was can someone with who uses voiceover exclusively actually um, use the app and then we would break down that feedback into a level of priority so if it's a critical, it means they can't use it because of a specific bug. And if it's high, it means it's blocking a specific feature right down to medium and low. Um, so if there's a workaround and similarly would take that approach for um, people with, with low, limited vision, like myself, I have I have maybe about 20 percent vision, um, a little less of late. But, um, at the, you know, so how I would use an application be very different to someone who's fully blind. But still, it's, it's important that we drive for that level of inclusion on such an important app so we provided all that feedback to Gar and his team and I have to say you know it was one of those things where you go through that I've gone through this process probably 50 100 times I'm, I'm not even sure at this point you know but it's all about you know keeping technology inclusive and Gar and his team I have to have to be honest really took the feedback on board it was something that we reviewed I think there are multiple occasions the uh, the the list of accessibility issues, and with every release you see it getting slightly better, and, and some some releases are, are big jumps forward in accessibility, and some are little little jumps forward, and I think you know we got to a point w- here in the NCBI where you know it's not perfect. Let's call a spade a spade, Gar. It's not. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we know there's some issues here, but the biggest and the most important thing that uh, you and I have agreed on as as uh, as kind of, you know, leaders in, in both organizations is that you've committed to make it accessible and we've committed to support you in obtaining it to be accessible as it moves forward.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I think that is the key piece. Um, it's you pay for the software and the bugs are for free. And well, I think even since we've gone live, so. People find things in like once it's out and out to lots of people. People find interesting, new and interesting things, um, and it's everything from uh, misspellings in town names, which is, uh, and also town names that aren't there. There are certain towns. But well, to be that fair, that very town very name should be place. there. It's
1: very much a town. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> Would you be referring to a place in West Dublin that uh, you forgot? Uh, referring to a place in West Dublin with a very
2: passionate group of people who uh, who wanted to be on that list, so it will be. So um, I, I think we have specific limitations. I, I can get into some of this stuff later on, but I think some of the things we're finding out now, they're going on the roadmap, we're just going to be working through them and trying to improve it. And for anything new that we're building into the app and anything new that's going to change it, it is core to it. And you're right, it is that idea of done. And done, and, and for us, it's this constant, a piece of we're looking at it from a privacy first perspective and accessibility. So those are the two things that are kind of driving it. And if you take privacy, accessibility and then it's the public health value of something like this, seeing it up and running and it's out there and it's actually contributing and augmenting the existing contact tracing that's running at the moment in the background. And that that is the, I guess, just to, and I, I hate, I, I, kind of, I feel like we're blowing our own trumpets here, but it is one of those things like we're the fifth country in the world to release an app on, on this technology on the underlying Google and Apple API. And I think there was a lot of uh, calls for, oh, it's not there and it's late. Like we're the fifth country out there who's done it. Yeah. And we're so we're we're kind of it's up and running and out there. And we're one of two countries who uh, ourselves in Denmark where it's fully integrated into contact tracing operations. Mm. So it connects into the back end. So it's fully connected end to end. So all of the contact tracing centers that were set up originally, this connects in and everything's connected to everything else. So it's not like this satellite that's sitting on its own. Mm. It's deeply connected in there, and it, and it, that's kind of a, it's a very important piece because this uh, this can't be seen in isolation. It's. It augments the existing operations. It adds to it, and it should so it, it accelerate things and pick things up that wouldn't be picked up otherwise. And that's kind of really what it's for. Well, I,
1: so I think I think that's a critical point that um, in regard to the app, it it is. It's another tool that's used to overcome COVID nineteen. You know what I mean? Fundamentally, it's not the only tool. It's not the silver bullet. It's part of, you know, it's it's part and and sometimes that that leads very nice into accessibility because using technology from an accessible standpoint, it's you know. I mean. I mean, there's numerous things that someone with sight loss will use to overcome, you know, mobility issues or there's numerous things that might to, to to sit and watch TV in the evening and, you know, COVID, this tracker app is another arm in defeating you know, COVID nineteen, as far as far as I can tell, uh, as a layperson. But I think what's what's important for the sight loss community is that you know, you know, isolation and not you know, uh, you know, for, for people with sight loss is a real critical issue. And as you you put it earlier on, people with sight loss might necessarily know who's around them. You know what I mean? Um, if they are out and they're on a bus or they're in a cafe or something like that, or you know what I mean. So having uh, another tool, you know. In your on your phone that's sitting in your pocket that just works in the background is hugely, hugely important. Um, one thing that I just wanted to make clear is that there's no obligation on people to download this app, Gar, is there? No, no. Yeah. It's completely voluntary.
2: It's completely opt-in and it's it's all consent-based, which mm. means you can withdraw at any time. Mm. And that's uh, it is one of the things with something like this that we, like, from that perspective, it, like there is no obligation on anybody. But what we're asking people to do is to it, it's to stay safe and protect each other. So if you do test positive, I kind of feel like you, that from a, like as a citizen, like there is like there's rights and obligations. So you kind of participate in that way. So if you've got the app installed on your phone, it means you can help people. Even if you don't know them, you can help people mm. by letting them know. And it's not that everybody is going to infect everybody else but if you do shorten that chain so if we do find somebody and you come into contact so you and i meet and you find out quickly and it means you stay like you 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 do the things that you're meant to do and you get tested and it makes sure that we shorten that chain it's really a critical piece in this to be able to, to um, I guess stop and halt and contain the virus, and that's really what this is all about. It's just making sure that we can do that. And I think the Irish people have, I guess they they voted with their feet or with their phones, and install the app on mass. And I think in terms of app adoption, so we've been talking to both Google and Apple in terms just over our experiences over the past, because it's been a bit of a whirlwind. So we're kind of seven days into it now. So the launch was this day last week, mm. and so we're we're up running. Things are happening, and it's kind of it's it's running there in the background. So they're interested in our experiences with it and how we've been successful with this launch and what other people can learn from that in terms of what they what 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 lessons can be learned from this and what is it that made it more compelling. So mm-hmm. what is it that got people up and activated them very quickly. So we're trying to figure out how do we help not just ourselves but others as well. And I think the other piece to add in this and which is to bring it into the, the technology end of it as well is that interoperability pops up as yet another thing for us to worry about now so as borders pop are, are opening up and people are traveling then it's important that we be able to interoperate with other people's apps and as i said there's there are me's. so there's somebody like gar in every country at the moment Building an app like this, so all over Europe, I think there's 16 or 17 different projects running. Uh, so at the moment, we've got Germany, Switzerland, Denmark, uh, ourselves, and Italy who are up and running on this. Um, Latvia, Estonia. There's a bunch of other countries that are kind of coming online. And as people start to move around, and as people are traveling from different uh, from different jurisdictions. Building the interoperability infrastructure to make sure that when somebody arrives in from another country, that they can both be notified should they come into contact, and that we can be notified should they test positive, and the that there are some uh, there are some significant challenges in terms of achieving that, but we're working through this, and it's a. Well, at the moment, there's a European uh, interoperability effort to make sure that at a European level we can answer those questions. We've been working with uh, colleagues in Northern Ireland as well, because obviously we have an island of Ireland problem that yeah, we have to yeah. solve here as well, mm-hmm. and making sure that the thirty thousand people a day who travel over and back across the border uh, can be protected using uh, an app here and an
1: app in Northern Ireland that they've signaled that they will so, so be releasing. I think, I think selfishly, what I think was is is very important for our community, Garrett, and I think, you know. Um, as you've seen, the importance of delivering an app that's accessible, that you be you also become an advocate for that accessibility as part of talking to your peers in the broader European community, where you know you can say, well, listen, you know, we've spent this time to make our app accessible. We've seen adoption rates at a level that it's not exclusively but in part successful based on the fact that it's usable by our entire user base as opposed to 80% of the people who download it you know so i think that would be something that i'd hope you would take away from the process to say you know what accessibility needs to be part of your development you know whether that's agile whether that's waterfall you know your definition of done needs to include uh, an accessible uh, application
2: Absolutely. And I think it's a, one of the ways of doing that. So we've open sourced the, the code base for this so you can see the practices in action, so you can see how we've designed and what we've done. So, and I think some of the challenges with this are just making sure that people, and it's really at a developer level, it's making sure that people understand what's required, what needs to be done, how is it done? So how do you do these things in the context of an app? So the code is there and it's open-sourced under an MIT license, so we've had lots of people go, go to GitHub, download the code, fill their boots either from a security or privacy or and from an accessibility perspective, I think it'll be interesting to get people to, to look at it through, because looking at the app, as uh, as an end user through the the usage of it is very different than looking at the techniques and patterns that are used in the development of that app. So I think mm-hmm. there's lessons to be learned there in terms of, and it's, par- it's probably w- something you and I can talk about in terms of turning some of this stuff into a case study in terms of how, how it could be done or
1: how it can be approached. Yeah, we'd be happy to support you, support and work together on that. Um, I think what I'd so, like to do is- Sorry with, guys,
0: can I, can I just uh, jump in for just one second? Um, just, just want to- Just going to invite you in. Yeah, <laughs> great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, (laughs) Just want to, I'm keeping an eye on the the time here. So we're just a little bit short on time and I'm I'm just keen to bring in one or two questions maybe that have come in from service users because just, it's been a really interesting interview. One of the things that's jumped out at me as this conversation has been developing has been very much the idea that for it to work, although it is a voluntary thing for anybody to, to download this, you want volume of people if possible to, to download it, but also to be able to to use it properly. That's accessibility and it's it's also addressing people's concerns about privacy. You don't want that to be a block, a roadblock for somebody to actually go and use the, the app properly. And I think we've got one or two questions that just came in in, in, in relation to usability. Um, maybe could I, could I invite um, JP just to bring one or two of those yeah. um, user questions in? Sure. So,
3: if we focus on the questions that have just come in today, first of all, if, if that works. Um, so the first one here is: uh, Can this app gar be downloaded on your laptop, or do you need another device, such as a smartphone, uh, to for it to work? So the and um, I guess I'd start with it. So the
2: the Google and Apple. Exposure notification system only works on phones. So it'll only work on a phone device. So therefore, this app will only work on a phone device. Okay.
3: Um, Garry, just uh, as you had mentioned over the last week since the, since the launch of the COVID Tracker app, so literally as you say this day last week, we, we have asked service users to send any, any questions or comment they might have, comments they might have uh, to the labs team. they will come back with a few interesting questions and I think some of them you might have actually covered already but I'll just go through some of them that I have here. Um, and I suppose many people are obviously wondering about security and privacy with in relation to the COVID uh, tracking app. So, I just noticed. I noticed you've touched on this already when you were talking about the decentralized model. I was wondering the question here that I have uh, been, been asked is how will the app protect my privacy and where is my data stored? So. Uh, I guess let, let me start at the bottom and work up so
2: the Google and Apple exposure notification system first and foremost is it's this isolated container on your phone so it it works independently of the app so in order for it to be turned on it can only be turned on by a public health authority mm-hmm. and only public health authorities can use it so there's kind of a double lock that Google and Apple have with us and that we have with them so we enable each other the uh, every day you generate this this ID that's stored on your device, that's stored securely and locally on your device on Android and on iOS. Every 15 minutes, at a rolling, it's called a rolling proximity identifier. So this it's an ID that's derived from that daily key is produced, and they're the keys that get shared across. So they're the IDs that are shared between yes. devices. So any device that sees each other, all it's getting is this random ephemeral ID that only lasts for 15 minutes and then it's gone, okay. right? And so I'm storing it, so I'm storing my own key, my own IDs, and I'm storing the IDs that I pick up if I come into contact with another phone. That's all stored locally on your phone. It's not touching uh, the HSE. It's not leaving your phone. It's staying on your phone. So that's Great. that's the very at a very basic level.
3: Right. Yeah, I think that'll be a very very reassuring to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, just moving on to the next one, um, we have a question in which. Relates specifically to iPhone users. So someone has asked, will the COVID tracker app work on iOS 14 when this is made publicly available later in in the year? Yes, is the
2: answer to that. So Apple have a roadmap for this and we're following that roadmap. There are releases of the Google Apple Exposure notification system and uh, they will be supported on future
3: versions of iOS. Okay, great. And just keep keeping on the theme of operating systems, Gar, Another question that we received is: Is it is it a case that the app can only be downloaded on newer smartphones running the more recent operating systems, or, or can it be downloaded also on on older smartphones as well? So, I I think there's two different answers to that, depending
2: on which particular um, operating system that you're going for. So, on Android, it's everything from Android 6 and above, which goes back quite a way. So you've yeah. got uh, anything that supports Android 6 and above uh, that's on the Android side of it yeah. and and we know that um, the, from conversations with Google, we're pretty sure that they're looking at Android 5, so going back even further, but it's Android 6, which is still like a good chunk of all phones yeah. that are out there. Absolutely. On the iOS side, it requires iOS 13.5, and iOS 13.5 is only supported from the iPhone 6s and on. Up, so. Yeah. The iPhone 6 is uh, doesn't support iOS. We're having conversations. Other people are having conversations, and iPhone 6 users are a very passionate and vocal bunch. Mm-hmm. And so we are we are listening to that, and we're working to try and resolve these issues. Our app will actually install on it. It's the exposure notification system that doesn't install,
3: and that's the challenge here. It's making those two bits work together. Work together. Let's see you, Jimmy. Uh, just a general question in relation to how the app works. And I know you did touch on this earlier, but someone has asked, how long do phones need to be beside each other? Before they would record as a close contact, and also what distance are they monitoring? I think you did mention this earlier. I was saying about 15 minutes, Scaram. I'm not to answer your question, but I think it was.
2: Yeah, so I, I guess the way this works is that um, if your phone picks up another phone that's got the app, it doesn't apply the two meters or 15 minutes at that point. So it just picks up traces of things as it's going through. Mm-hmm. So anything it picks up, so you could be at three meters, four meters, five meters, it picks it up. It's only if we get these a random ID where you've had an exposure event to somebody do we apply this so it's at that point in time where we're downloading, so imagine your phone every, on average, every three hours is downloading this set of IDs that that people who've tested positive have uploaded to HSE servers. So it's pulling them down, comparing them, and it's only at that point do we apply the 15 minute, two meter rule to exclude anything that doesn't match those criteria. Yeah. So it's not, uh, it's not done kind of on a phone, on a pairwise basis where it's yes. doing phone by phone. It's yeah. literally only when we're comparing it at that point in time yes. where we're testing against an
3: ID. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Just two two, two more quick ones here. Um, Do I need to check in on the COVID Tracker app every day? So is it best practice to check in on the Tracker app? So I guess there are a couple of different
2: answers to that. Um, If you start developing symptoms, absolutely check in because you can track the state of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. so That's the first thing. If you haven't got symptoms, but you're worried and you feel that um, and that you want to make sure that you do remember if you do develop symptoms, again, check in and do it right the but the, uh, i guess it's important to say that each of the different features in the app are independent so there's no dependence between contact tracing and the covid check in so they're, they're independent of each other. So I don't, for contact tracing to work, I literally have to onboard onto the app and that's it. What you're doing by checking in is you're informing, you're creating this national picture of what's going on in the country. So if we see uh, lots of people down in, say, the south of the country are developing coughs or loss of sense uh, of smell and taste, then it helps inform this natu- national picture of what's going on and the development and progression of symptoms. So when you are checking in, don't think Think of it as just for you, you're actually informing a national picture as what's going
1: yeah. on.
3: So there's a bigger picture there. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. If we have time for, for a couple more things, I don't know sure. if we, do we have. Yeah, go ahead there, Jude. Yes, yeah, so we we have probably have time just for maybe one more. That's okay, perfect. Well, actually, I just want to add this one through this. Past
1: some, Master some, Jude.
3: <laughs> uh, there is there is one other query uh, which I might just forward on to Gar, gar- in relation to a voiceover user who does um, find the app generally very accessible, but just wants to have a couple of queries, so I might forward that to you after sure. the live event. But just two comments, because I think it's worth highlighting the the, the, you know, the positive feedback that we've received from this app as well, from service users over the last week. Uh, one comment has come in from uh, Dom- Dominique. She just said that, I, I found the app very accessible with voiceover, and would highly recommend others download today. One other comment to finish off on is, I'm very happy with the app, which is more ammunition in this virus fight everyone with the wherewithal must sign up and be encouraged to do so and then ask for feedback from William. So that, that wraps it up there. So thanks for answering the questions, Gareth.
0: No problem
2: and it's great to hear the feedback it's and we're happy. So. so any feedback that comes in and any feedback you get from your service users, obviously we're, we are listening and we want to make sure that we can improve this as a product and make sure that it delivers the value that it needs to deliver. Excellent. Thanks, Gareth. Yeah.
0: We have just maybe a question from, I think, Daniel. Do you yeah. have a question as well?
2: Yeah, just um, wh- when uh, you're in on the national picture um, section of the app where it gives the latest um, data on cases that are on a county co- county
1: by county basis, is there any plans to expand that out? So let's say I can just view the, the cases by county, but let's say I want to kind of find out uh, what's in my county. Let's say it's for somebody who's in Galway, right? Clifton is way mm-hmm. up there on the West Coast and you could have
2: somebody over in ballinasloe Law right there on the eastern border and like they are about a hundred miles apart. So, just from that point of view, is there any chance of uh,
3: that we'll be able to be drilled down a bit more?
2: Sure. Well, we, um, I guess, what we're drawing from there and the data you're seeing, and you can see the sourcing at the bottom of it, but it's pulling from Geo Hive, which is the data hub. Uh, used by the Department of Health. So CSO are involved in that as well. Um, HPSC, which is part of the HSC, So we pull data from a number of different sources. It is one of those things that we are looking at in terms of, what, so anything that's publicly available and that we have access to, we can uh, we can pull that data in there. And what we're working on at the moment is trying to figure out what's useful to people. So what questions is it helping them answer? Uh, what kind of ideas have they got around it? Because I know there are, when you see some of those numbers, uh, it, it provokes a question. So what is that question and how how do we help answer that question? So this is part of their user research, and it's something that um, it's Kyron, it's on my list of things to talk to you about as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back on that in terms of different uses for it. So we do have uh, more data and it's all. So if you Google GeoHive, you will find that public GOI website and you can fill your boots with all the data that's out there that's publicly available and there are other data sources that are there. So anything that's kind of publicly available that is coming from uh, uh, that has the right provenance. So it's coming from a source that we can credit, then we can pull it into the app and we can do something with that.
1: Mm. I think yeah. what's important just just from my perspective, just to mention is that the relationship between um, uh, the HSC and the NCBI, uh, particularly in relation to this app, is is we intend this to be ongoing. So, if there's people within you know the site loss community that do have additional feedback, we'll be maintaining that and giving that feedback back to Gar as the app progresses as well. And we'll you know we you know we hope to continue building on that and continue working that. So each of the subsequent releases not only fixes bugs that we found, but also you know. Uh, new features that are coming to make sure they're accessible, which I think is hugely important. But what I'd like to reiterate to all the listeners of, of this podcast and live event is that if you do find issues or you do have suggestions on the accessibility side, don't hesitate to email labs at ncbi.ie. We correlate all of the feedback that we get from our service users and we make sure that that feedback is either sent to guard directly or we maintain an issue log and accessibility log on behalf of our service users. So keep all that feedback coming into us, labs at ncbi.ie. That's what I going to say. We did get a few emails in, in the past few days about that. We have it all
3: logged and saved and ready to go okay. for when we need it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Very good. And just maybe just one last quick question. I think you've actually answered this, Scar, but I'm just thinking of it from the perspective of, y- you obviously don't want this to be an app where there's any kind of, any misconceptions or, or fears stop somebody using it. And I'm just thinking, you kind of have explained this. But when you're going onto it and you're checking in, if somebody was to, let's say I go onto it and I check in and I say, I have symptoms now. yeah, I can imagine perhaps some might worry that, well, if, if I trigger this and I'm not feeling too bad, really, if I trigger this, is this going to suddenly be the thing that triggers um, maybe messages going all around to people that I've been been with. I think you've kind of covered this already, but yeah, it, it it won't. So
2: that no, nothing like that happens. So in order for you to get uh, to get warned to get a close contact warning, it has to be as on the basis of a positive test result from the HSE. So it's yes. completely independent of the the COVID check-in, which is the symptom tracker feature of it. But in order for you to get a warning, it, nothing will happen on the back of that. That data gets shared. Um, to it gets given to the HSE we give it to the CSO, it gets pushed into GeoHive, and it's an anonymous uh, bundle of data that helps us visualize. So over the next couple of weeks, we will, we're will we working on kind of heat maps for the country to show the progression of symptoms and try and understand and identify hotspots from a symptomatic perspective. So that's where that goes, but it doesn't go anywhere near, or it doesn't impact contact tracing at all. So if you put in, I would, I would recommend you put in your symptoms accurately, yeah. so put in your symptoms, as you feel them, record them in that way, and be sure that the only way you're going to get a close contact warning is if you have come into contact with somebody who has tested. And this is the important piece: you have to have, in order for you to for uh, for your IDs to be shared with everybody else, you've got to get a positive test from the HSE. So you've got to have tested positive and upload them from your phone. So you go through a process so there's a control on that. So it's not just throwing in symptoms. In other jurisdictions, people have looked at uh, self-diagnosing based on symptoms. In Ireland, it's based on a positive test only.
0: Yeah, very good. It's good to kind of clarify that as well Um, and uh, appreciate all the clarity that you've given us to that. It's been really interesting just hearing um, the whole development process and all of the considerations that had to go into that. appreciate your comments there, Gareth, and thanks for joining us. And similar to Kyron as well, thanks for joining us again on the the live event to go through that. Um, Obviously, as we've been mentioning, it's uh, it's vital that if people do have questions, please do get back in touch um, because we, we, we're we here to provide support obviously, um, but we can also feedback anything that's uh, particularly relevant uh, that uh, needs to go back to, to Gary, the team there as well. So uh, please do send in uh, any of your, your feedback or your comments or your questions still, we can uh, still address those. So thanks very much for uh, covering uh, can that. I, can I just say one uh, last thing? I just want
2: to thank the team on the NCBI side of it because I mean you guys contributed significantly to this app and thank you all for all of the efforts you put in throughout the process so thanks again. Brilliant, much appreciated. I'm looking forward to working with you in the future.
0: Yeah, us too. Great stuff, very good. So thanks again to Garma McCrista and to Karen O'Mahony and uh, again do uh, feedback any comments that you have in regards to that. So what we're going to do now is just we're we mentioned that we have a, an interview uh, to finish off our program. It should just uh, fill it fill the uh, remaining time just nicely. So we'll we'll uh, go straight into our uh, interview. Last week we were talking. To Stuart Lawler, who is obviously a very experienced techie, but we're going to be hearing now from someone who describes themselves as definitely not an IT ninja, but still they've managed to find technology to be very helpful in different areas of their life. And this week, seeing it your way, JP has been talking to Mark Keogh. Okay, so I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Keogh. and Mark, you're very welcome to our live event.
3: Thanks very much, Sophie. Great to have you with us. Um, So, Mark, before we have a chat about your own use of technology in your day-to-day life, I suppose, what I thought we could do is just take a step back for a moment and you could perhaps tell us a little bit about your own story and, and background, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, no problem at
4: all. Um, uh, I originally was, I lost the eyesight when I was 19. I was uh, trying to be a chef. I was kind of halfway through that, so i had done be two years at law and doing professional cookery and uh, doing my work experience then. And then I lost the vision down to probably 7-8% within a two-week period. So I quickly learned that uh, chefing had to be a uh, it's um, no longer kind of a future career for me. So after yep. that then, I went straight into the training centre in Master Council for Blind Arbor you guys. And I done a nine, nine-month course there, where I was first introduced to the, the world of the Jaws. Yeah. And uh, and didn't Zoom text and things like that, but Jaws was the one that was most uh, beneficial to me that worked for my eyesight. Yeah, and this is around about, uh,
3: 19, Mark, you were that age?
2: Yeah, 19,
4: year year 2000 now, so nearly yeah. 90 years now in civil service, so then a few years in different um, retraining and education. Started with a nine-month course in NCBI, nine months in Roslyn Park, and then I joined the civil service then in 01, uh, the clerical officer.
3: And, and you were in the training centre for a while at the NCBI. Uh, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about what, what you did there, Mark?
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, all the other, like the content there, I learned Braille. Um, I was definitely much better at writing it than reading it. Um, I used to find trying that. It was quite tricky for me because I come from a second background, you handed it, burnt. I wouldn't have the, the sense of touch required for Braille, yes. but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And I remember Donna was teaching me that. That was, that was a long time ago now. I thought, uh, yeah, time. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And then I done... Um, I done some kitchen skills and I think I gave the instructor a heart attack there because uh, I was doing, uh, the knife we were using could have been sharper so I just took another knife out of the drawer and started to sharpen it. <laughs> they gave the instructor a heart attack and um, <laughs> so we, it's nothing day on we, we had some great chats about my experience in yeah. cooking and different restaurants I worked in so uh, it's been great, great fun excellent. working in there excellent. Doing, excellent. doing classes. And That's then the, mm. the training course there with actually Ian uh, it was, for, it was the training, the IT is sort of there at the time. And yeah. remember Stewart also was in there. And um, that's where I first got the introduction to Java Software. And that's where I got my first PC uh, and following on year to there, my first laptop from National wow. Camera. Hey. So yeah. it's was, it was a cool of days, I think, was the. Grant scheme back then.
3: Yeah, it's called. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was great. Absolutely uh, great and, and, opportunity. And well, and, and Mark, you, you would have started using JAWS at that point then, would you, for the first time? Oh yeah, I remember touch learning, touch type, my home keys, yeah. and, uh, and like now it just
4: comes to me like, on a daily basis because I, I use um computer for, for work now every day, like every day. So yeah, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, okay. a lot making so making errors though. Yeah, uh, camera <laughs> <the> <laughs> was still laughing. Now, she's seeing some of the errors I made. Yeah, <laughs> like like the rest of us.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, so Mark, and you said in two thousand one, then you became a clerical officer. Um, so then, so I wonder, could could you talk about maybe what happened then? And I suppose your, your career progression since two thousand one yeah, yeah. so till Yeah, and actually, the fairness was Anne Smith who um, gave me a hand to apply for. The
4: clerk officer in the civil service actually going to help with the yeah. um, interview preparation and um, got the got the job in the civil service. Then through I've done um,
0: my actual entrance test um, via JAWS. And for the uh,
4: public appointment service, they're really good. They make it so yeah. accessible to people with disabilities, and I strongly recommend it to everybody. Like it's really it's a great source of employment so, great opportunity.
0: Right, right, um, right so important. Yeah, I joined the civil service. Yeah, clerical in 01. and.
4: And um, it's really it's great opportunities there. I'm a assistant principal officer there now, and great opportunities for training at my degree at night time um, yep. in the IPA through uh, to the course, to the job, and yep. for education in the Kings Inn and it's be clear Law for my own uh, current role. Uh, okay, it's fantastic opportunities. Again, all kind of fueled by technology and Java software.
3: Fantastic. Um I wonder could could you give us a bit of a, an overview of your day to day role while you're working now? Yep. Well at the moment obviously this COVID lockdown, um I'm actually working from home and
4: yeah. I just uh, have my laptop and keyboard and who uh, did straight access into our the government network so I have full access to yeah. all my contacts, my drives, yeah. my yeah. files. So I'm a key account manager in the Office of Government Procurement and yeah. my my main role is just to assist public sector bodies to utilise centralised um, contracts for goods and services. Uh, so, okay. help them with our procurement strategies over the next two years, um, a yeah. bit of uh, training, um, really? planning, things like that, all around public procurement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, like every day. Is different, Excellent.
3: So. And, Mark, is your role mostly desk based, or would you occasionally be meeting clients outside of the office as well? I would be out of the office quite a bit. Um, I have to yeah.
0: face
4: meetings, I do presentations, um, deliver um, some kind of a training for like around different parts of procurement, the thresholds, things like that. And yeah. again, technology is a it's fantastic assist there for me. Like, yeah, um, yes. use PowerPoint Excellent. or presentations. I use yeah. a lot of graphics for PowerPoint because I can't see the detail on the slides, but yes. um, I see large images, so I know if the it's the one with the four blobs, is the four principles. So I know once I see the four blobs, I know I've discussed that. Yeah. Yeah. And the next one would be one image in the middle, so I know yeah. what each slide is, Like so I can talk about it then. Yes. I can see yeah, the yeah. outline yeah. of the slide, but I can't see yeah. the details, so once I want to know what slide yeah. it is, I can, I can talk about it then. You know
3: then. Uh, and are there other applications you've used as well, Mark? So like you use PowerPoint, obviously you're using Outlook, I presume, would you for mostly? Oh, Outlook,
4: yeah. Most of my work is done by
3: email, and
4: yeah. phone, yeah. and face-to-face meetings, um, and yeah. even things like the, the Maps app on the iPhone. That's what yes. into a client for the first time. Yes. I send yeah. the address and get directions, but I have a fair idea where it is. But just even things for finding the actual door to the entrance. Door. That, yeah. I, I, the, the talking directions are fantastic. A bunch of you practically outside. I want you there first. First time it's grand after that time.
3: You know. Then so that's really interesting because yeah. I know I know we had we had a piece in our on our last live event on on apps for navigation. So that's great. So you're using Google Maps to find you know certain certain offices for the first time. After that yeah. so you, you become familiar with where yeah, they are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. And, and he, speaking of your of your of your phone, Mark, what kind of phone are you using? Are you using iPhone or Android? Um,
4: yeah, I recently got a new iPhone. There, I was in the side for I years, then went to be there recently. So I got the yes. iPhone eight. And I loved absolutely brilliant. Nice phone. Um, I wasn't yeah. able to get the audio on my old phone, and like audio uh, for audiobooks is fantastic. Like, great yeah. access to information there, like so. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And, and do, you, do you listen to audiobooks, Mark, as well? Yeah, yeah. L- l- again, Richard Branson, the read a couple of his books. Um, okay. I was doing some study. I'd get them in the audio as well. Um, audio, yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. And
3: excellent.
4: podcasts are fantastic. Like for like my, uh, I done I my degree at night time in public management, so a lot of management stuff and economics. Yeah. So the podcasts yeah. are absolutely fantastic because yeah. once it's audio, it, they have to give you a fantastic description of what's going on. Yeah. So it's a yes. great way of
3: accessing information. And Mark, are there, are there other applications that you would use on, on your iPhone to, to help you maybe in day to day things? Like say for Example, any OCR apps that might read text for you or anything like that, maybe? Uh, I wouldn't use them too much. I think obviously the banking online, if I
4: was going mm-hmm. to a restaurant, twice, Yeah. I normally want the to online read menu beforehand. Yeah. Um, I don't use the OCR ones much, to, to be honest. Um, yeah. I use yeah. the notes app quite frequently. If I'm at a meeting and um, yes. I'm taking a few notes, I might use the notes app on the iPhone. And um, yes. yeah. Again, the podcast, I, I use that quite a bit. Um, yeah. I use WhatsApp an awful lot, so I'd have different to groups of contacts, whether for, for work even, so rather than having to type in those large amounts of Text. I just do voice messages to yes. my contacts at work. Yes. And most of them just respond back that way because it's much easier yes. rather than typing. Um. Oh, it's really really good, now. So, so you're you're liking the iPhone out anyway? You able to thumb thumbs up? Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm sure, yeah, yeah. only using you, probably ten percent of its ability. Um, I'm definitely not a a guru or a IT ninja. Um, no but it's <laughs> some great contact. Quite great, uh, things design some resources. I don't yeah. r- rang yourself to get some assistance on on the. Phone um yeah, yeah, or chat rooms online. You get some good solutions there. Um, yes, so I know that's yes. definitely not maximising the capability of the phone, but uh, I'm slowly
3: getting my head around it get, Getting get, get Yeah, yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And Mark, I suppose just to maybe um, to change change subject slightly. I, I I I know that you were you were hugely involved in in many of NCBI's fundraising campaigns throughout the years, and uh, I'd just like to acknowledge that because I know you've done some. Great work raising raising funds for NCBI, and as, as as many of your family members, I suppose throughout this time um, you you were hugely involved in in in, in cycling and tandem cycling. Yeah. I, I know you've achieved a lot in, in that regard. You, you, you've, um, uh, besides raising so much funds, you, you've, I you know you, you've raced through Europe on a tandem. You've cycled stages of the Tour de France. I, I know uh, from chatting to you previously that you're, you represented Ireland at Paralympic Games in, in Athens in 2004. Yeah. I mean, these are these are huge, huge achievements. And I wonder if you had any any kind of sporting highlights that that you, you could you could tell us about. Anything that really kind of stands out over over your, your cycling career, as those that you really enjoyed and built back on with, you know, was kind, of, kind of great, great, happy memories.
4: Yeah. Well, definitely exciting so with our good self on the Four Cities Challenge. that oh, was yes. brain we've done that a couple of times, so we, did. we, uh, we certainly enjoyed that. I enjoyed our chat, mm. um, and yeah. I've been really lucky. I've done some fantastic events through the Blazing Saddles and Annie and even Dusty, organizing those events, um, first being in Malaysia, then California, South Africa. But definitely the highlight for me was doing the six stages of the Tour de France with me Pilot Karolinski and um, Sean Kelly came with us, so that was uh, a yeah. two, t- two tandems and that myself and Billy Shannon and Dennis Timio yes. did our did pairing on tandem. Yes. Yeah, twenty eight yeah. sort bikes and two tandems, but that was definitely by by far one of the best students uh-huh. well, I'm really proud of well, um, and that was the year before the Paralympics in before As- the Paralympics. and some fantastic training but well, definitely yeah. mentally the hardest thing I've ever done was the six stages was
3: I, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been going up the uh, sort of uh, alpine climbs on a tandem mark I, I just I really can't or, or Dan for that matter <laughs> and you've so. done some of them you've done some of them with, um, uh, with Javon I know
4: that that's, um, that's, true. that's the way true yeah yeah, 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 exactly, yeah, great great yeah. yeah, that's but, um, great. It's
3: I Absolutely, it's brilliant, like. Um, yeah, but, uh, and, and, and Mark, what about Athens? I mean, sort of the, 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 the opening ceremony of, of the Athens Olympics season 4, I mean, that must have been fantastic as well, to, to walk out and have absolutely. your family there. And um, yeah, I remember then, um, we were doing the opening ceremony,
4: and I remember then it to me beside me, and uh, my parent, my family, parents come over, So I said goodbye to yeah. the airport. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. Dennis said, oh, oh um, your mother wants to talk to you, she's on the phone, and then I realised that uh, they'd come over a few days after I left, and yes. I the crowd. That was a really nice surprise, but uh, oh, well. definitely a thought that stayed with me today. that um, <laughs> was an amazing experience. Was and, uh, it was great to hear um, like Ireland being called out, because myself um, and Ian, and Dennis Toomey, Ian Matten and Dennis Toomey, we were yes. the first Irish cycling athletes to compete in the Paralympics Um, and then then some great cyclists came on behind me then and we got top ten then in in, in various ones and then we got six medals then in London, so
3: it was a great opportunity. Big, that
4: foundation and some really good cyclists came behind me then so
3: Excellent. fair play to them Excellent. And, and Mark I know I mentioned about the the fundraising that you, you've done for, for NCBI over the years well, I, I mean there's obviously so many charities out there you, you could have raised funds for was there any particular reason you, you did choose to raise funds for NCBI in particular um, well in fairness when I lost um, majority of my eyesight when I was 19 like uh, it was
4: a huge change in my life and to be fair I got so much out of that sailing course mm. Um, mm. back in in 2000 I remember um, Ann Smith and some really great people there mm. and uh, just, it was just a fantastic opportunity. They, told, they, sh- they showed me there's a new, there's way more out there now than I was like suddenly shocked and changed lots of eyesight. Whereas yes. now there's so much more to do. And yes. just, um, just showed you the new skills to, to get on with life and, and go again. Yeah. And yeah. Then that was kind of the foundation like for training, yeah. education, career other yeah. interests like the cycling that came out of NTBI as well it's like really um, fantastic firms are, so the meet on a daily basis so Yeah, um, yeah I'm very loyal to NTBI. other charities I often do better of work with is the, the guide dogs we do a quiz every year for NTBI. Yes. yeah and um, yes. the guide dogs stop normally every holy Thursday but this year it was uh, oh yeah went online for COVID did so you, did so it was, online I'll come back next year yeah, yeah. I was yeah. not online but uh, it wasn't near as successful because um, you can't yeah. sell tickets on, online for the yeah. Or, uh, yeah yeah make yeah, that yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, and Mark, how, oh, yeah. how, how, how did you? The like some of even some of the fundraising targets for these events. They're, they're quite significant, you know, particularly the ones overseas. Like, how, how did you manage yeah. to raise funds? Like, did you, for example, do any kind of uh, like on, on, on online campaigns, like, like my charity or anything yeah. like that? That's it.
4: Yeah, my charity stuff, that's a way to, um source for just the, the message out right there, putting up photographs, that's what we're doing. We put up the roof, we put up the, the profile of the mountains. So it made it very real. They've seen the, um, what we're doing. And nice. then um, just gave me kind of updates on our training because the, the training was like savage. And um, so the money definitely came in. Then we've done events as well, like the quiz and things like that. And social media is, is a fantastic source of getting social media like, access, yeah. Yeah. sending out. Links. Yeah. Um, that was IT definitely played a good role in yes. getting the message out there of what we're doing and yeah. how how people like that can support. So yeah, it's it's been fantastic though.
3: And Mark, do you, I wonder if you give us any kind of situations that you would you would currently find technology useful in kind of isn't it, in your day to day life? You know, at, at the moment, obviously this is this work, but maybe for more from a kind of social perspective, um, outside of work where where you might use technology. You, you mentioned WhatsApp. Or I use Facebook a small bit, it, um, and yeah. WhatsApp is, kind
4: of the, is the main one for me, again, if I was going meeting some friends, I would go to a restaurant, I'd definitely Google the menu online, um, even they're getting directions to restaurants, sometimes you get the address, and yeah. Uh, directions to the different, various restaurants What um, mm-hmm. one other ones, social ones. I wouldn't be huge on Facebook, I don't use it a whole lot, to be honest. Um, it is, it's it's handy, already it's way for getting the information the the quizzes and things. Uh, I use yes. it for the cycling ones, like map my walk, map my cycle, um, yes. things like that. Yeah. Um, Brava, yeah. that's a really good one for um, measuring your, your cycling. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 excellent.
3: So, so actually the, technology would have some role as well, but, but, you know, in terms of your you're, you're, when
4: you're playing sports and, and cycling as well, Mark, oh usually so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's for mapping your your training, your average speed. If you are mm-hmm. in the same route all the time, you can see what speed or, or what time you've done the Excellent. previous week, the Excellent. previous month. So you can see any any and improvement there. So, that's yeah. interesting, Mark.
3: It's and how, how does that work now with something like Strava now? Like, how would you how would you um, like, map your your ride if you wanted to do that now with something like Strava? <laughs>
4: Yeah, it's pretty, it tells you your the calories burnt. Um, it gives you the history of what, of what rides you've done. Um, I tend to use Excel as well. It's like once a map. Yes. Um, what you mileage every week, mm-hmm. uh, the profile, the meters climbed. I would yeah. use Excel as well. The for that um, yeah. I know you can yeah. pay for the Strava one and uh, get the. The, the pro pro version and it's way yeah. more kind of um, if
3: uh, information available then yeah yes yeah. 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 yeah 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 and, and, and Mark what about uh, at the moment with, with COVID and so on we're all, all a bit restricted lo- lo- with the lockdown but you, you, I know you're trying to go out and do a bit of walk though at the moment and so sometimes you, you you were saying you might um kind of keep track of your steps and so on have to give yourself targets yeah each yeah. Day. yeah wonder how about how, yeah. how how are you meant to do that to, to keep record of your, yep. of your of the steps and so on
4: yeah. Oh, definitely with the lockdown I wasn't doing as much walking because he's walking there to work mm. but uh, so i found definitely a few culvert kilos so um, <laughs> I've like, Six so or seven weeks ago, it's the right time to up the steps, so and I'm, I'm daily target of 15,000 steps, so that's really good now that's, to come back nice. that.
3: And then managed to the restart uh, most days.
4: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, very fact, yeah. It's went for a big walk um, before work, and then after work is a nice way to end. Like if you're working from home, then nice you yes. go for a walk then half, yeah. five, and then when you come back in from your walk, you're not working anymore, Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the Covid though, Like Netflix, the audio description on Netflix is absolutely brilliant. Um, That's
3: really, really good. I think a lot of our listeners will will be watching Netflix, particularly over the last two or three months. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. It's been a help them getting through, through COVID now. In yeah. fairness, and uh, yeah, 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 we're surviving Excellent. now, In fairness, yeah, 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 yeah. And Mark, yeah. before we before we before we finish, I wonder, uh, could would you would you be able to offer some advice to say someone who might be new technology, who who um who has life loss, and maybe they just want to get started with it, uh, maybe on, on their mobile phone or on a computer. Would you offer any kind of general advice to them? I would
4: say, um, don't be afraid of making mistakes. With it, Cause when I got the mm-hmm. first iPhone, I was all over the place with it. So um, you can't break it. Just go in, try different things, um, mm-hmm. and you'll learn that way. If you get stuck on something, into Google, there's nearly always the answer there. Don't be yes. afraid to use your network of friends and um, mm-hmm. ask them for input. And then, with regard to employment and accessibility and IT there, when I always start a new job or a new role, I give the heads up to the the hiring manager or your line manager and say, I have visual impairment, I use this software to do this, this and this. Here's where I foresee the challenges and here's the solution I'm proposing to get around this, so you're going to the employer with a solution as opposed to going with a problem. Yeah. PublicJobs.e, I definitely recommend a job cool. a career in civil service. Absolutely fantastic again okay. okay. Yeah, that's pretty much it now. Um excellent. I'm definitely no IT ninja, but uh, it helps me every day in my in my day-to-day work, social uh, life. Definitely
3: a well, great assistance to me now. Uh, yes, i I've seen clearly from a from a conversation that has been Mark. So Mark, I have to say it's, it's been great, great talking to you today and I'm sure all of our listeners I I, I think they're gonna be able to identify what a lot of, of, of what you've spoken about here, and I, I've no doubt uh, benefited from much of your advice too. Uh, so, again, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. No. Thank
0: you, So, our thanks again to Mark Keogh there. I, I don't think my step tracker is approaching anywhere near 15,000 steps a day, unfortunately, but uh, other than that, I really enjoyed <laughs> Other than that, reminder. I really enjoyed that interview um, and of course, a reminder that if if you want to catch that interview again, uh, along with all the other content in our live shows that can be accessed in our various podcasts around on YouTube as well. So our thanks again to Mark EO there. And as always, if today's show has triggered any questions that you might have about technology or you need support in some way with software or hardware, please do call the technology support line on 1850 923060, or you can email labs at ncbi. And remember, of course, that there's also a wide range of different NCBI services uh, where they can provide support. So uh, if you want to access that support, you can contact our national helpline on 1850 33 43 53, or you can email us at info at ncbi.ie, that's info at ncbi.ie. But for today, we're just about at the end of our live event. Just enough time to let you know what we'll be looking at in the coming weeks as well. Um, So we're going to be looking at uh, our braille technology. That's what we're going to address next week. We're going to uh, have a a few demonstrations actually of some of the technology that's involved there. We're going to be looking at accessible household equipment as well. We mentioned that last week as uh, something that would be, maybe there's a few little gaps in, in that at the moment, but it'll be interesting just to see what is available in terms of accessible household equipment. And we'll be looking at typing tutors as well uh, in the future. If you want to keep up with what's coming up in future live events, you might want to sign up for our newsletter to keep you informed so you can visit Our website at uh, www.ncbi.ie and just go to our technology page, or you can email labs at ncbi. So, all that's left for me to do is to thank our contributors once again, uh, appreciate hearing from Garma McCrista about that really important app It certainly had a lot of take up already in its first week uh, for the COVID Tracker Ireland app. So uh, it was good to, to hear about the development there and thanks again to the panel as well and all those involved in getting the show up and running and we look forward to seeing everyone again next week for the next NCBI Labs live event.